There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Drive live. Talks legal. So our guest today is Ludmilla from Yamalaba and Pleska. Ludmilla, very good to see you. It's the first time I've seen you, so Happy New Year. Is it too late to say that? And not at all. I always love uh, celebrating the New Year, and as far as I'm concerned, it's still the New Year, so great to see you as well. <laughs> the party never stops at Ludmilla's house. No, but it's the first time you see someone. I'm sure you can still say Happy New Year if you've not seen I them. am delighted to see you this year, and this is the first time. Mm, I don't no, know. No, you're saying I'm in February sure. it's too far? Uh, no, I'm, I think it's not. I think it's polite, don't get me wrong. And Ludmilla, you are very welcome, of course, but I think it's more like, how good it is to see you rather than Happy New Year. We're February what? Fifth. Fifth. It's okay. I'm I'm awake today. (laughs) It's fine. Don't worry. But um, yeah, no, it is great to see you. Great to have you back. And um, yeah, basically, we've got a few topics to cover today. And of course, we want to take your questions too. So if you have a question for Ludmilla, she's ready for 001 or via the free messaging app. But I guess the first thing we maybe could start with Ludmilla is domestic workers. If they have employment grievances, what is the route people can go down? Because we do have a law. But in practice, how difficult is it to achieve any kind of result? Well, domestic workers, what, what we are talking about, that is is those who are in the service industry. And we're talking about nannies, maids, drivers, gardeners, uh, and so on and so forth. So until recently, until about October of last year, those workers were not covered by the UAE labor law, and they were not therefore subject to the Ministry of Labor. Now, as of, as of the time the law became effective, and that has changed, and so now they're still not subject to the UAE labor law now, but they're subject to this domestic workers law, which in many ways, and in relevant terms, uh, has similar benefits to those um, that are offered to employees under the UAE labor law. And more importantly, for the purposes of bringing up grievances, they're now subject to the Ministry of Labor. So if there is a grievance, what they would do is they would sh- show up to the Ministry of Labor and just la- uh, lodge a complaint with the ministry. And um, the way it normally works is that the ministry tries to resolve it by way of mediation. If, if it's possible, then uh, things ma- uh, resolve then. And if not, then the Ministry of Labor would um, give a, a, a no objection or a certificate for the employee to to file a case with the with the labor courts so in that case it will it will trail the same processes in any other employment dispute okay this is something we're going to come back to in a few minutes time because right now we have yaku on the line yaku has a question for you lude miller hi yaku hi there guys how's it going great thank you lude miller's listening and ready to answer your question Thank you. So uh, my question is, I'm, I'm appearing where we have to uh, go in front of the rental dispute uh, committee tomorrow. Um, my landlord decided that um, the security deposit he wants to use for repairs that I actually don't agree with. But the actual question is, what do I do to prepare for tomorrow? How does the whole process work? Obviously, no lawyers involved. Um, what can I do to go prepared? And yeah, what, does the, what, is, what can I expect tomorrow? Uh, well, it's. Uh, I'll be frank with you, Yaku. I, I wish you well tomorrow, but uh, the timing is a little bit um, sh- limited between now and tomorrow. Uh, but one thing that you need to be um, prepared is that the judges do speak Arabic, and so the default language is Arabic. Historically, the rent committee in the past used to be a lot more flexible than the courts and so they would actually debate with the applicants in in other in english as well uh, depending on their level of um, 
the, in, the command of the English language. Uh, now, since in the last, I think, year or two years ago, the rent committee has been transformed more into the uh, into the court forum. So they are actual judges, and therefore the process is is more formal now than it used to before. And therefore, Arabic is by default still the official language. So you need to be prepared to speak in Arabic. And if you don't speak in Arabic, the committee does. You know, some judges may speak with you in in English. So hopefully you'll get one of those. Uh, and if not, there's always a translator. But you have to be very careful with translators because you really don't know uh, what, what they're saying. And uh, you may even be at a greater disadvantage if the other party, for example, the landlord actually speaks Arabic and you don't. So it, there may be a little bit of an imbalance of, of power. Um, that being said, uh, the, um, the, the rent committee, just like the courts, decide most of the matters on papers and not so much through the oral advocacy. So you need to be prepared to present documents and arguments. Uh, perhaps tomorrow is just the first hearing. So if it's just the first hearing, that you may also you may ask for an extension. So if this is the first hearing, I would recommend that you do ask for an extension and, and take some more time to prepare. Uh, there could be some okay. procedural arguments. So that would be number one. And, uh, and you can ask for an extension. Usually judges are very flexible in that regard. And then you may also want in between now and then consider hiring a lawyer, but it sounds like it's just the value of the deposit, so it may not be economically worthwhile. Uh, but then um, also then that, that time you can, um, you can maybe <laughs> do a little bit of your own research. But one of the arguments you can bring up is, for example, procedural argument, and that is that for the landlord to claim a reimbursement of expenses, it could it could potentially be uh, considered as a separate argument. So it's not even so much a defense to, to keeping your deposit. It depends on how what they're asking and the nature of their claim, but it may be that the way they are trying to offset your deposit, it's it's it may actually be a separate legal claim. And if it's a separate legal claim, then the landlord has to file a claim separately, not just make these arguments in response to your deposit, but rather file a counterclaim to yours and therefore also pay uh, uh, rent committee fees and make his own sort of separate argument. So that's a procedural argument alone. So if you yeah. are, if you can raise that argument, so certainly raise that argument because it may be that just on the basis of that, that the judges will give you an extension and then the, the landlord will have to file a separate case. Again, you're the, the devil in the details. So, but that certainly is a reasonable argument to make. Otherwise, you need to be ready to prepare um, documents why supporting your argument, why you do not agree with the expenses of the landlord is now claiming uh, and uh, presumably either he or you will have expenses um, or, or receipts so make sure to have all those documents with you and subsequently at some point you will need to be able to put something on paper and that will have to be translated so in addition to produ producing evidence you'll also have to have some explanation as to what happened because oral advocacy alone is not sufficient uh, Yaku, can yeah. I, it's Tim, it's good to have you on can I just ask you uh, what kinds of yeah. things do you not agree with you say that uh, this is a, a security deposit dispute you disagree with some of the repairs that your landlord is claiming. Can you give us an example of that? So um, it's, it's uh, the, the definition of usual wear and tear. Um, so there might be a, a small chip in the tile that, uh, that he's decided no, I need to replace uh, that. Um, but if you've lived in the house for uh, over three years, um, that, that could be seen as usual wear and tear. Um, so that's, that's probably the, the, the main thing. So it's not a, a large amount of, of money. Um, but um, that's, that's the, the, the definition of wear and tear, basically. But the landlord's claiming an exorbitant amount to fix that usual wear and tear, I'm guessing, and that grates with you? Yes, yeah, that's, that's the, the, the problem. So uh, we just want to make sure that the definitions are right and that no one, no one loses out. So we just want a fair thing to find out 
what's going on and um, take it further from there. You know, and also one of the other, on that note, one of the other defenses you may have is that how do you prove that, for example, that chip in the tile was not there when you moved in? So normally the landlord should, I mean, that that should be the practice. It's not very common that it is so, but uh, when you move in, there is some sort of photographic sign-off on the state of the property. So then that way all parties are on the same page in terms of what that tile, for example, looked like. So if the landlord doesn't have that, remember, you may be able to bring that as a defense because the burden is also going to be on the landlord to prove that those or those are damages that are attributable to you. Okay. Yeah, no, we don't have a snag list uh, documented. Um, so but neither uh, does he, right? So. Yes, correct, correct. Okay, Yaku, hopefully that answers your question as best as we can the night before it's going on. But um, good luck from all of us here. Thank, Thank you very luck. much. Appreciate it. And, and Ludmilla Yaku is not in a, a unique situation there. People are coming up against this time and time again, and that's probably why you would encourage a snag list so that these things can be looked at and there's a record kept over time. Absolutely, and um, I'm not usually in, in favour of very verbose or lengthy documents, but, but in this particular case, more detail is better, and that is when you do move into a property, make sure to also describe not just the state of the property, but also the the purpose of that deposit and under which circumstances that deposit will A, be returned, B, offset, and, and if offset, C, on what grounds it can be offset. And in particular, as far as, as the particular issue is, is concerned, the biggest issue, as Yaku said, it's always about what repairs are covered the responsibility of the tenant and what repair is a responsibility of the landlord and those details are often not uh, described in in sufficient detail Um, so make sure that you understand that and also that there is um, perhaps even either an automatic or not right for the landlord to offset from the deposit but equally so for the tenant for example to offset from the tenancy or the 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 rent payment if certain things are not um, spelled out so the more detail the more you can uh, describe the specifics of, of possible eventualities based on your experience the more protected you will be drive live talks legal you're listening to Drive Live Talks Legal. Our guest today is Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plethka. And we were talking uh, a few minutes ago, Ludmilla, about domestic workers. We were talking about employment grievances and it was just a timely reminder as well about this change in the law and what people are entitled to now. Uh, yes, and so one of the, I guess, more important, the, a number of elements, but um, one of the, the new elements that was introduced, and that is uh, the uh, entitlement to the end of service. And end of service, that's what we refer to as sort of the UAE alternative to a pension plan. So now under this new law, the domestic workers are entitled to it now. They were not so before. And that's 14 days or two weeks per year of every year of service. And it has to be actually paid out uh, every two years. And it be- and it's because the contract will be for a maximum of two years. So at the end, of, at the very least, at the end of every two years, it must be um, uh, paid out in full. So let's say if somebody worked for you for five years, it's not it's not that you will pay the service benefits at the end of five years. You have to pay it every time before you re- renew the contract. Um, so that's a very that's a very important component because it's it's an element that never exists never existed before, and and a lot of uh, employers out there perhaps are still not aware that they need to start budgeting. And accumulating uh, for this for their uh, for their employees for their domestic staff now the other uh, the other interesting element is um, vacation mm-hmm. so employers are not allowed to uh, to um, 
defer vacation for more than two years. So, if, so the first year you can, if um, if the employee is agreeable, you can pay them in lieu of the the vacation. But the following year you cannot deny them actually taking vacation time. They they are required to, or you're required to let them leave the country and and go visit their. And if they, I mean, some people ask to to stay because they want the money instead of taking the holiday. After two years, that's still a problem, even if it's their choice. Not not so. If it's obviously if it's their choice, people can always agree to Mm. do something other than uh, what the law allows them to do. But I think the the more common scenario is where employers actually do not allow employees to leave for all sorts of reasons. And so in that in that sense, at least there's a protection for uh, for these domestic staff. And now they cannot be denied a vacation for more than two years. And just on that note, Ludmilla, it's a, it's, a, it's a scenario that gets brought up over and over and over again, but it's passports. It was never okay to keep someone's passport. That hasn't changed, but it's worth reminding people. Indeed, and actually, and there is a specific uh, provision in this law, that is, and that is that the employees have the right to have their identification with them at all times, uh, and also that they have the right, and it's, it's the obligation of the employer to make sure that the employees or domestic staff actually have access uh, to be able to contact their family, which is very important. But as far as passports are concerned, uh, as, as you rightfully said, this is not new. Um, passports are property of the foreign government. So it's never all right for private individuals or, or corporations, for that matter, uh, to hold passports of anyone else because they, are, they belong to the government. So obviously, or the foreign government, obviously, if it's, in, it's, if it's an authority such as the police or the courts or the immigra- immigration, then yes, then they have the right to, to take the passport, but they are the only ones. And it's never been okay. And then we've heard stories over and over again where companies hold passports by way of uh, just practice and um, that's always what they've done and this is what they feel comfortable doing that if if employees or accept that and do not disagree well then th- that practice continues but otherwise legally speaking if if somebody wants to uh, reclaim their passport they can always go to the police and and the police will uh, i mean this is what we've seen happen in practice will make the call to the employer and and you know, 99, nine times out of 10, the employer releases the pas- passport right away because, again, it's against the law to hold your passport against you know somebody's will. Mm. So a company I used to work for, somebody uh, asked us to keep their passport for them in, a, in the fireproof safe because he said, look, just take it because I'll lose it. But that's an entirely different thing. So that's uh, Was it issue, you? Isn't it? <laughs> well, not me in this instance, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I'm in that club. Okay, coming up, we will be talking about investor visas because it's a popular topic. We get lots of questions on this. So if you have anything related to it, uh, investor visas, inherited property, that kind of thing, Ludmilla will answer your questions. Now, a few minutes ago, we spoke to Yaku, who's going to the Rental Dispute Centre tomorrow to try and fight his case over a deposit. Now, we've got Stephen on the line, Ludmilla, who listened to your advice in terms of the, the RDC, and he has a good news story. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, how are you doing? So, you've got a good news story coming out of the advice from the show. Yeah, I do. Um, I actually, I think I texted in about and spoke to you guys about nine months ago. So the, the short version of the story is I was living in a villa. Um, was, we're negotiating for uh, a rent renewal. We couldn't reach an agreement um, through using the um, rent calculator. So the landlord evicted us. And I suspected that there was going to be, um, he was going to move someone else, which he did. And I, I spoke to you guys. And then based on the advice, we, um, I opened the case with the RDC um, and the RDC, because it was a two-year contract I'd signed with him, then awarded me the difference um, between my contract I'd signed with him and my new lease that I'd had to take out. They awarded me two years difference in, in money. Um, 
which was actually, it worked out brilliantly. Now, because it was over a certain amount, the landlord was then allowed to appeal, uh, which he did, but he lost the appeal. Um, and I think just in terms of, you know, your previous caller, I would say, you know, the advice that I would give is be really patient. Um, if you can take somebody who speaks Arabic with you, um, at times it, it can be quite daunting and, and a little bit confusing, but the process is actually quite clear and, and well laid out and if you're patient and you follow the steps and do what's required of you um I, I found the rdc to be actually coming from the uk quite a simple and quick process in terms of uh, i guess what would be what is a civil case so anybody who's listening i'd say if you if you're confident in your case um don't be daunted by the rdc in the process but but definitely go and do it and i think the rdc are very fair and actually seem to look quite favorably on on tenants as well. And is that a sentiment you would echo, Ludmilla? Absolutely, and that's what we've said for years. Um, the um, RDC and same with the, uh, the Labour Courts, um, they are so highly experienced, you know, purely because of the sheer volume of, of cases that are brought before them, and they are actual judges, and these are judges that they use logic and common sense and not just the, the black letter of whatever is on a piece of paper. So they will look at the party's actual intentions, and they will they will look for whatever is fair and just and they're very the, the RDC and same with the uh, labor courts are very efficient um, they they know what they're dealing with they, they know probably the crux of the matter before it's it's properly briefed before them because it's let's face it more or less they're all the same um, cases so I'm glad uh, Stephen thank you first of all for, for your input and I'm really pleased that it worked out for you and, and that um, it's been a worthwhile experience uh, and it's in, in particular it's interesting for me to hear from you because we give this advice um, quite frequently because the law has always been very clear that you know what tenants can do if they were evicted unfairly and prematurely uh, and that's you know and that's what's exactly what you said the damage that you described uh, but the problem what we've faced is that most people once they've moved out they've just they've moved on mm. so they don't really want to go back and, and fight for these things and, and this is how they get unaddressed and this is how this particular practice continues to uh, to to um, you know to exist uh, from the side of the landlord but once you challenge them, and these, this kind of input is, is highly valuable because hopefully all of those who are listening, tenants and landlords alike, are taking note and understand that the system does work and that the law is pretty clear. Steve, yeah, so I, would, I would just say it, it took about eight months, but in the judgment, the judgment when it came out was very clear in referencing what a landlord's duties were and to the by law what the requirements are in terms of not being allowed to put a tenant in two years after you've evicted them so the judgment was 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 very clear and actually when you read it, it it's it's exactly what the law said they said you know you cannot do this and because of that these are the damages that are awarded and then that's great to hear and I, I tell you we've seen these cases even when it's an individual versus a company and you know are the, the famous individual versus a, a you know a, a sort of a commoner uh, and so the the judges are always the same that they apply the law as it's meant to be applied and I'm um, great to hear it from you firsthand and um, that you saw that um, happen in your own case and that's very refreshing and hopefully uh, f- hopeful for those who are considering doing the same. Stephen really yeah, I, appreciate I, I, you getting I, I in touch. Be confident. Yeah Stephen. Be confident and do it. Stephen thank you so much for telling the story. It's great to hear a happy customer listen to the advice and take it all the way so really appreciate it. Thanks a lot Stephen. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you. It's Drive Live Talks Legal. Our guest today, Ludmila Yamalova from Yamalova and Pletka. And uh, we've had another couple of questions in for you, Ludmila. This one in particular um, is about employment. They've This person has texted in. They want to remain anonymous, understandably. And uh, they've said, I raised a complaint with HR against my boss, who was being disrespectful. Now, after the official meeting, both him and the HR rep called me saying I need to resign and leave immediately. They said they would pay me two months salary first of all is this legal i have an unlimited contract and i've been in the job for four years Uh, well in short basically what this was amount to is constructive dismissal Uh, so if you do resign uh, so obviously what they're trying to do is they try to avoid terminating you or firing you to avoid paying the, the additional benefits that would otherwise be required to pay if uh, if you were, if they were uh, to terminate you versus you resigning, so that's what they're trying to do. However, in your case, uh, it doesn't really matter. So obviously, if the working conditions for you are unacceptable, uh, you may resign, but resign w- clearly outlining the reasons for your resignation, which is what you just described, and that the courts look at that as basically constructive dismissal or constructive termination. That is, you're forced to resign because of the circumstances in which you are forced to work, uh, and so it does. So in that case, it doesn't matter whether you're being uh, terminated terminated or whether you resigned, the benefits would be the same. Uh, what that means for your uh, for your case, since you worked with them for four years, obviously you'll be entitled to the end of service benefits, which is the 21 days of your basic salary for every year of service. In your case, it's times four. Uh, you also would be entitled to the notice period, whatever that notice period is. The default is one month unless um, uh, the contract provides something else. Uh, so you want to review that contract because depending on, on your position, we've, and we've seen notice periods anywhere between three to six months. Uh, so that you'd have to get that paid. And on top of that, you'll also have to, um, you can ask for the arbitrary dismissal, which is a three, up to three months pay uh, for a, a full salary. Uh, for being arbitrarily dismissed. Now, in uh, in limited contracts, the three months is, is is sort of a given. In unlimited contracts, most of the time, the courts, even though the, the the law says it's up to three months, in most cases, courts do grant the full three months. And in particular, for somebody who's been with the company for four years, uh, because in uh, it's still even in unlimited contract, termination has to be done for valid reason. And if there is no valid reason, then the court has a discretion to award damages for up to three months. And in most cases, and and we were just dealing. The case right now, where somebody worked for five years, the court categorized this that as a very, very long time with the company. Therefore, warranting the full three months of arbitrary dismissal. So, all in all, in your case, you'll get the end of service benefits, the the month, uh, the the notice period, whatever that may be, the arbitrary dismissal up to three months, and whatever remaining vacation. Uh, time you have left and, and in any other prorata bonuses or commissions uh, that you might have earned if, if applicable. Hopefully that answers your question. We've had another question relating to estate agents. This one says, I had a dispute with my estate agent. They promised a completed garden at handover. This was agreed on email. The landlord reneged on this. So I as a tenant spent 11000 rather to fix the garden and want the cost from the agent who misrepresented the property to me at handover. So they say they've, they've not got this in a contract, but the proof of promise is from the agent agent in an email uh, uh, well so one an important comment an email it also constitutes admissible evidence uh, for the purposes of interpreting the terms and conditions of a contract so a contract does not need to be all inclusive in, uh, in one piece of paper so any of these um, other 
communications and correspondences and representations um, are also uh, used as evidence to prove what the actual intentions of the parties were and the, and the actual terms and conditions that the parties were trying to agree on. Now, so that's that's one. So email is is very valuable, and I would um, I would make sure to 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 rely on it. The uh, the the interesting nuance here is that you actually have three different parties. There's you, the tenant, then the, you have the, the, the agent, the real estate agent, and then you have the landlord. Now, these are all three different parties, and your claims actually are different, and, and then we ba- based on different documentation, potentially, depending on what documentation exists, because your tenancy agreement is, is with the landlord. And while agents often manage the process and, and even provide these tenancy agreements on their letterheads, they're actually not parties to the agreement uh, because they are not the, the, the parties to the agreement are the landlord and the tenant uh, so it, it presents a, in legal terms a quite a conundrum often in terms of how you how to apply an agreement to parties who are not parties to it uh, so but this is this is one of your complications is that how can you hold the, the real estate agent responsible if you don't really have a document with the real estate agent regarding the property that they do not own um, so the better um, the you know, the better uh, argument potentially, uh, and that would be is to actually claim that amount um, against the landlord, not the agent, because obviously the agent is not the one who owns the property, and so and you can use the argument that the agent was the agent of the landlord, and uh, if there's a power of attorney, that would only bolster your case. But in any event, if there's any other documentation such as that same email, where the landlord would be copied. Uh, to prove that the landlord knew about this commitment, and then you could use that uh, also as proof that that was supposed to be part of the agreement. Uh, but um, that your stronger argument would be against the landlord and not the tenant, uh, not the the agent. You can, however. Re- um, uh, report the agent if you want to rear um, there is an avenue to do so though we've we've tried to test it in the past and it hasn't been very uh, effective so far but it's still it's you know you have that avenue as well and that potentially um, encourages agents to to improve their practices um, to to avoid this kind these kind of misrepresentations could you deposit the checks at the rental uh, committee at the RDC for example when you next renew your rent less 11,000 dirhams and produce that email as proof of why you're not paying the full amount is that you, you could but ultimately that you need to have a case to argue right? right so just presenting a check in of itself is not really will only preserve your position in terms of showing that you are not defaulting on your obligations such as right. payment of the rent but if you wanted to offset the 11,000 which is a significant amount you at some point you will you will have to um, to bring a case and uh, unless you're able to sort that with the landlord so let's say at the end of the the, um, the tenancy agreement you just prorate your or you stay extra time at the at the property to kind of offset the deposit I mean that's that's an option but it sounds like you just recently moved in and it's a significant amount that you'd want to get reimbursed right now so the best thing to do is number one negotiate with the landlord and uh, number two as Tim said if you want to try to use his leverage and and just next rent uh, pay less minus uh, minus this amount and and deposit the rest of the check with the the rent committee just as proof that you're not defaulting. But number three, and when all that fails, you just need to be pre- prepared to bring a case to RDC.
And just very briefly, Ludmilla, sorry to put you in this position, but we did say that we talk about um, investor visas. There is a short answer to this. Can an investor visa be based on an inherited property? Uh, I will answer that question because it's very important. No, it cannot. And this is the investor visa we're talking about is the visa that's available um, in Dubai um, on the the basis of owning property in Dubai that's more than the million dirhams. Now, there were a few clarifications to that particular regulation that um, came out of a a few years ago where it became obvious that if um, if it's if the property is is transferred as gift for example let's say uh, you Natalie and and uh, and Tim are relatives and you want to uh, to transfer the property between each other so those kind of properties that were transferred as gift would not qualify for your uh, residency visa and then we actually even had a, a question from the um, uh, from the uh, uh, listener in the past and we've seen this particular question mm-hmm. come up several times in our practice in the last several months and that is what if the par- uh, uh, property is inherited and particularly a lot of people here who live here all of their lives they own properties and they have children here and they would love to be able for these children to inherit the properties obviously and and ultimately have the benefit of the residence visa on the back of this property it is not allowed we've just had it confirmed once again it's not written anywhere uh, but it is not allowed um, at least as of now Okay, Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Pletka. Thank you very much for joining us, answering all the phone calls and the texts and the questions. Thank you. Always a pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.